are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. Dignity. Dignity often comes through work, through feeling like you're accomplishing something, being proud of your work. Work isn't what it used to be. Here we are in the thick of the 21st century. Yeah, a lot of the jobs are largely the same as what they've been for the past 50 years or so, but the long-term economic security American workers used to be able to count on is just uh, no longer as it was for most of the 20th century. And there's been a government-subsidized race to the bottom in which many of the largest employers are taking their jobs overseas where wages are lower and there are fewer environmental regulations, if any. Many new jobs today require skills that current workers often lack. Can anything be done realistically to address these challenges? What might a better future of work look like? Well, we're going to talk about that. Uh, There's a new book, Shaping the Future of Work, What Future Worker, Business, Government, and Education Leaders Need to Do for All to Prosper. Our guest is the author, Tom Cohen. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Bert. Delighted to be here. Oh, good. Tom Cohen is uh, George Bunker, Professor of Work and Employment Relations at MIT's Sloan School of Management and co-director of the MIT Institute for Work and Employment Research. MIT, not a shabby little institution, not at all. Uh, From 2009 to 2011, he served as chair of the MIT faculty. In 2010, he led the formation of the Employment Policy Research Network, an online think tank on the subject of employment. He's the author of Restoring the American Dream, A Working Family's Agenda for America, and the co-author of numerous books. Again, thanks for being with us. In in your new book, you seek to prese- present a comprehensive strategy to change the course of the American economy and the employment system. Uh, the direction has been taken for the past 30 years. Tell us, if you would, about the course the work system has been taking over that time. Well, unfortunately, for the last 30 years, wages have been stagnant, uh, and uh, most of the growth in income uh, has been going to those at the very top of the pyramid. And so while, wage, while productivity has grown, uh, uh, wages have been uh, flatlined. And so uh, basically a lot of the frustration that we're experiencing in the economy today and in the politics of today really reflect the, uh, what workers have experienced. Um, and we're not creating enough good quality jobs uh, to absorb the new entrance into the workforce. And so a lot of young people are starting off 
worse off than their parents did. Yeah. And that's really not uh, mm-hmm. the kind of uh, expectation that young people have, nor the legacy that those of us in the baby boom generation want to leave to the next generation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm so concerned and, and, and focused on what we can do to get this economy moving in the right direction. You mean the Republicans, when they claim, oh, trickle-down works, just get government out of the economy, just turn it over to an ultra-free market, uh, and, and that will all by itself create jobs, you know, do away with unnecessary regulations, uh, let, let the businesses uh, rule. Wouldn't that uh, take care of it all? Well, in fact, we've been doing that uh, for a long time. We've uh, reduced regulations. We've deregulated industries. We've opened up uh, our markets to more international competition. Uh, we've let the minimum wage slide down to a very, very low level. We have uh, weakened unions, and uh, our labor law is no longer a viable uh, threat uh, to employers. So they've had much more flexibility, and in, in reality, what's happened is that uh, workers are worse off today uh, than they were before uh, uh, these changes were made. In the years from the end of World War II up to 1980, we had a situation where wages and productivity moved together because our institutions and our policies were well-suited for that economy and that workforce. And we had collective bargaining that uh, helped to distribute uh, the benefits of productivity in a fair way with wage formulas that said, let's set wages roughly uh, at the level of uh, productivity growth plus cost of living. And so we created a stronger middle class. But that all began to break down in the 1980s, and uh, uh, corporations became much more focused on short-term shareholder wealth mm. maximizing, and uh, other stakeholders, employees, and their communities uh, have taken a back seat. Interesting. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Tom Cohen, author of Shaping the Future of Work, What We Can Do About It. And from 1945 to 1980, yeah, that was kind of a great time for for workers and unions, people working in in industries. There was kind of an understood social contract after World War II. What, What was that, and how different is it from what we see today? Well, what we uh, and many of us refer to as the social contract was this notion that uh, that as the economy grows, so too should uh, wages of ordinary American workers. Yeah, sharing the wealth. They huh? should share fairly in, in in the productivity growth, and so that's through uh, uh, that bargain, that sort of implied uh, bargain. In some cases, uh, an explicit negotiation. Uh, uh, workers were able to get. Uh, their share, and productivity, profits, and wages all moved up in tandem. That broke down in in around uh, 1980 when uh, you got a very big shift in politics. You got the Reagan Revolution. Mm -hmm. You got a deep recession that uh, introduced more international uh, manufacturing goods from Japan and other places into the American economy. And you, you got a much more aggressive role for financial markets, um, putting pressure on companies to maximize short-term profits. And that uh, uh, constellation of forces led to the breakdown of that social contract. And we really haven't replaced it with anything um, uh, since then. 
So our challenge today, and I think it's a, it's a challenge that we can meet if we get on with the task, is to create a new social contract, not to go back to the way that, uh, things were because the workforce, the economy, uh, a lot of things have changed. But we can create the conditions to, that will allow wages to get moving again in the right direction. We can create a better distribution of the benefits uh, between firms and, and workers and between the very high-income mm-hmm. and middle-income uh, uh, employees. And we can start to create good quality jobs if we really invest in our future. Wow, that's that's a uh, that's a lot on the table there. How, uh, I, I, I just how realistic is is that? I wonder. And you know, is this something that left to its own, the free market would do on its own? And are there people who make policy who are trying to be in positions of making policy? Are there people who are who are addressing that? I mean, it's extremely important. Our economy is just so important. Is it being talked about those those uh, factors that you just uh, spoke of? Well, the, the the good news is that politicians are waking up to the reality that the American public is so frustrated that they better start to to respond and do something. And so people are talking about it. Not all of uh, the politicians are talking about it with a uh, a constructive view of yeah. what needs to be done. But the good news is the public is not going to sit still much longer for the status quo. And we aren't going to get there. We didn't get there just through free market choices. We made some bad policy decisions that got us uh, uh, in this pickle. So we can make some good choices moving forward. The three things that I think we need to do, number one is we've got to reward those companies that are creating good jobs and paying decent wages by uh, uh, encouraging them to uh, be... Uh, more active, uh, more supported when they uh, apply for government contracts and uh, and weighing their high productivity more heavily so that we can get uh, good jobs uh, moving. We've got to invest more in um, research and development so that those companies can compete on the basis of cutting-edge technology and new products and new innovations. And then, number two, we need to rebuild worker bargaining power. Uh, I mentioned earlier that unions have declined. Well, we aren't going to go back to just the labor management, union management setting that we had in the past, but we're seeing all around the country explosions of new ways that workers are starting to organize. In traditional unions, unions adapting to these changes and working in partnership where they can with companies, but also new groups with uh, information technology and using apps and providing free um, uh, freelancers, uh, health benefits, and training opportunities, and access to information on where the good jobs are and what they need to do to get there. So we need to create new forms of worker voice and, and engagement and give them an opportunity to, to uh, influence their terms and conditions of employment. And then the third thing that we need to do is we need to get these different interest groups to start working together rather mm. than uh, separately. So business is not going to solve this problem on its own. Neither is labor. But if business and labor and educators and government leaders start to sit down and say, what do we need to do? Where do we need to invest? How do we rebuild our infrastructure? And how can we make sure that those investments uh, result in, in high-quality jobs? How can we really make sure that we're training the workforce of the future in the skills that are needed by business 
and that business is then ready to uh, to uh, pay those workers a a, a good uh, career uh, oriented uh, wage. So if we can get the parties together, I think we can solve these problems. Some politicians are talking about it in a positive way, and some are just railing against uh, uh, the the situation and and stoking the fears that everyone has uh, and the frustrations that are are are, are so apparent. I think we got to get beyond that. We've we've got to have a positive vision for the future, and then we got to hold accountable uh, the people we put in office to make it happen. Wow! Yeah, stoking the fear. You know, fear is always—it's it, so great for politics to just manipulate fear. It, it's very effective. It usually works, and uh, doesn't necessarily produce the best results. And I, you know, for a long time, I thought that, uh, you know, when, when when people who are working in a factory or whatever have a, a say in what gets produced and how it gets produced. You get a better product. You don't have to have uh, people on, you know, workers on one side, management on the other. And I remember back in the 80s, uh, I was very excited before it happened, the Saturn car production idea. There was a situation where it looked really hopeful, worker participation and management. What happened with it? There aren't any Saturns anymore. Well, it's a it's a very sad story. Uh, we worked uh, very closely with Saturn Corporation in our research, and then in, in in helping them to put in place some of these worker participation processes. And it was a very innovative concept uh, when it was put in place. Unionized, um, the auto workers union was very supportive and very much a champion for creating a new kind of. Uh, organization with working in teams, working together, yeah. really engaged in um, making sure they produced high-quality um, vehicles and provided great customer service. And the company did very well in its first generation, but then uh, it was almost too radical. Uh, the yeah. top leaders of uh, both the union and the company that were the champions retired, and the CEO of General uh, Motors and the uh, President, the incoming president of the auto workers unions, both said, "Well, we're not sure about that. We're giving too much control to these people on the front lines, and uh, that's not really the kind of way in which we've uh, built our our company or our union." And so they stopped investing in Saturn. Their cars got older; they uh, um, got more expensive, and eventually, as General Motors went into bankruptcy. Um, uh, they had to close, or they decided to close Saturn down. Mm-hmm. I think that's a sad story. I think it, it's a model. A lot of other organizations learned some things from Saturn. Certainly Ford Motor Company learned more than General Motors did oh, from watching that experience. And so I think uh, we're getting some benefits from it now. But uh, uh, we missed the boat, or in this case, missed the, the, the automobile that uh, could have carried us into the future. But I imagine there are, and that is, it's, it's most unfortunate, there must be other situations where something like the Saturn model is still working, that, they, that you know, well, the ownership didn't there, de-unionize. There is, and I'll give you a unionized one, and I'll give you a non-unionized one. Please. The unionized one is uh, Kaiser Permanente, this giant healthcare, care, uh, both healthcare insurance company and provider, um, with offices and clinics and hospitals, on the West Coast, and in Georgia, and in uh, parts of the Northwest, and in Colorado, and other parts of the country. And there they have been highly unionized for years, 
But about the right around the turn of the century, around 1997 to 2000, uh, the unions there and and the leadership of Kaiser Permanente said, "Look, let's start working more cooperatively together. Let's start to really engage workers in problem solving. Let's use state of the art techniques of problem solving to negotiate our labor agreements." And they put together a labor management partnership that is better than anything else we've ever seen in this country. And it's lasted now for over uh, 17 or 18 years. And they have frontline workers working with doctors and nurses and technicians uh, sponsored by the union and, and by the company together that work on improving health care and solving problems and improving safety for the workforce, making Kaiser a better place to get health care and a better place to get work uh, to, to work. And so that's a model for how labor and management can really be on the cutting edge of, of innovation and be a very high-quality healthcare provider using advanced technologies and all the tools of the trade um, to, uh, uh, to meet their patients' needs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, closer to home uh, uh, here in the Northeast, and you know it very well in New Hampshire, uh, two years ago in the yes. summer of 2014, oh, yes. we saw the employees at Market Basket revolt against... Uh, uh, a board of directors group and uh, a particular uh, family member who wanted to extract all of the profits out of the business as fast as, as he could and ruin essentially uh, what had been a hundred year long company uh, that really provided very good prices, very good customer service and very good jobs and was successful financially. And when, uh, uh, this new CEO gained control, uh, the employee said, hey, wait a minute, you're ruining our company, which we helped you build, and our customers are going to protest with us. No, did they we? went out, essentially, on strike, as you know, in the yes. summer of 2014, and after six weeks of being out there and essentially closing the, 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 the business off um, and, and getting strong support from the customers oh, and from yeah. the community, yeah. Um, the uh, uh, the board of directors had to relent, sold it back to the CEO who uh, was uh, being supported by the employees, and the company continues to thrive today. So this is, this was a sign that the way in which the public responded so positively to the employees and the customers' revolt really said, we are thirsty for those kinds of companies. Yes. And we know a good one when we see one. We're going to support it. And by God, why can't more companies operate that yes. way? It was fabulous. It was a wonderful time. I mean, the solidarity, a word you don't hear very often these days. It's sort of an old-fashioned word, but it was really there between the workers and the customers. And their great reputation continues these days, and their business is thriving. Why don't more companies recognize the benefits of good uh, corporate relations, good public relations enjoyed by both Market Basket and Costco, for example? Why don't more well, do that? I think the, the, uh, you have to look at the pressures that financial markets are putting on firms. Um, the CEOs get their, way, their compensation tied to the price, uh, the share price. Uh, that leads them to want to make sure that they're always getting that price to, to, to rise as much as they can. Mm. They're looking at quarterly short-term profits. And that pressure is uh, led to a very narrow way of holding labor costs down and 
viewing labor as a cost, not as an asset. And I think that's a, a real constraint. The other thing is uh, our, our employment and labor laws are so weak that there's room at the bottom mm. for a Walmart to pay very, very low wages mm-hmm. and to keep their prices low by just squeezing the labor force. Yeah. And they're not uh, able to unionize at Walmart because the labor law is so weak. Anytime a, a group of employees try to unionize, they get fired, yeah. or uh, the company sends in a SWAT team to mm-hmm. make sure that they squash any organizing efforts. Uh, we don't have a situation where employees have a voice in uh, trying to help customers improve um, their experience. And so you, it, it's, it's a traditional way of, mo- of managing that labor is just a factor of production and uh, you keep your costs as low as possible and we can make good profits that way. That's in contrast to firms that say, yes, we can make good profits that way, but we can make good profits by treating employees with respect, by investing in them, by making them more productive so that we can pay them more. And at the same time, while we are successful, like Costco is, financially, we also can um, provide good jobs and good careers for our employees, the way Costco or Market Basket um, uh, does it. And so we have a choice, a choice on how we're going to manage and how we're going to structure our businesses and how we're going to compete and uh, right now, there aren't enough pressures to get uh, business leaders to take this high road approach to managing as opposed to the low road. Interesting, interesting. And uh, I, I just if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Thomas Cohen, uh, MIT uh, professor of Work and Employment Relations at MIT Sloan School of Management. The book is Shaping the Future. Of work, what future worker, business, government, and education leaders need to do for all to prosper, like we used to have. And and I have to wonder about the role of of Ronald Reagan. One of his first acts as president was to break PATCO, the Air Traffic Controllers Union. I got the sense that that really set a pattern, and that was a new uh, attitude. Like we're going to break unions. How significant was that? Well, that was really a watershed in U.S. labor uh, relations history. The pressures for change were building up before Ronald Reagan took those actions, um, but he kind of unleashed all of the management militancy that had been uh, kind of building up. And uh, he said, look, uh, I'm going to take this hard line, and the private sector took its cue from him and said, maybe we can do the same. And so you saw after that more uh, um, uh, aggressive management resistance of unions. You saw more demands for wage concessions. Uh, You saw more quick movement to laying off workers, not as a last resort um, when business was was really in deep trouble, but as sometimes a preemptive move to restructure the business. And so it did uh, change the tenor of employment relations in this country in a way that we haven't quite recovered since. And so I, that was a, a very important uh, 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 historical uh, uh, event and action on his part. But there were other things that, that went with it. Yeah. We, we did have this deep recession. We had the uh-huh. growth of uh, international competition. We had a changing industrial mix. Uh, the, the high technology industries were growing, and they were growing up non-union, and so... Um, this, his actions had to be put in the context of these other things. 
but clearly it had a big effect. And, and what about, I believe Kevin Phillips talked about the, the change under Reagan also of the sudden primacy of the finance uh, uh, industry, you know, the people who lend money and how, you know, it used to be we were, we had a lot of act- jobs that created things, but, but focusing on, on the financial markets and, and, and giving them just like running wild. Uh, am I on, on course with, with a sense that them having so much power before that was part of the problem? And I wonder how much power they still have. It seems to me a lot. Well, there were uh, uh, important changes in financial markets in the 1980s, and then deregulation, uh, yes. allowing investment banks to to become more active um, in, uh, in in this whole area in the 1990s. And basically, what uh, happened is you had the the growth of of these what's called junk bonds, where yes. firms were were given loans without much collateral mm-hmm. to go deep in debt and you got hedge funds and you got uh, uh, hostile takeovers by uh, private equity firms to come into a company and say look we're going to break you up we're going to take you take over your company we're going to go deep in debt because we can get the loans and we're going to sell off different assets to pay off these loans and then we're going to jack up the the, the share price even though we're shedding employees and we're shedding uh, all kinds of businesses, um, we can jack up the share price of the residual company, and then we can sell it back uh, to somebody else on the market and make uh, enormous amount of money. And so that era is still with us. We still have the financial markets putting tremendous pressure on corporations, as, as we discussed a, a, yeah. a few minutes ago, to make sure that they are getting short-term profits and that they are focused on shareholder value as opposed to in the past where companies were much more constrained by stronger unions or by uh, uh, norms in society that said you have a responsibility not only to your shareholders, sure, you of course you've got to make a profit, that's what um, you're in business to do, but you also have to do it in a way that is fair to your employees your customers and responsive to the to the communities that uh, host you and that provide it, uh, all the infrastructure and the educational oh, really? um, resources uh, that uh, you rely on. That ethic of concern for multiple stakeholders is still not returned. I think there's a growing interest in that. I think the public is calling for that. If you do a poll today, you will find that a majority of workers majority of the public, regardless of, of their employment status, say that they think companies should take account of multiple stakeholders, not just their shareholders, um, as as top priorities. But we don't see the behavior change yet. No, we don't. And it, it does seem that most people believe that corporate decision makers are, are constrained and required by law to focus exclusively on maximizing shareholder value. That isn't true, though, is but it? That, that, that's really a myth. Yes, most people believe that. Lawyers will try and sell you that, that line of argument. But uh, the, the laws of, of incorporation in most states say that the responsibility of the boards of directors and the chief executives are to protect the interests of the business. That does not say that they have to protect just the shareholders' interests. And 
most uh, states, including Delaware, where most of these big corporations are chartered, will give boards of directors uh, tremendous discretion to define how they maximize uh, or how they they, uh, account for the interests of the business. And that can be long-term shareholder value. That can be Uh investing in employees so that they can build high productivity uh, companies that produce uh, good value to the different stakeholders. Uh, And as long as they are uh, uh, good fiduciary agents and responsible for protecting the long-term interests of the firm, they can manage in a lot of different ways. And so I think there's room under our uh, legal uh, doctrines uh, to uh, to move in this direction. Well, I would certainly hope so. It's amazing what people accept as true and isn't necessarily so. Now, uh, uh, Professor Koken, you participated in two top-level AFL-CIO Future of Work study groups and in a Clinton administration Commission on the Future of Worker Management Relations. Talk about those. What dismayed you about both? What concerned you? Well, we had this window of opportunity in the 1980s and then again a little bit in the 90s to to really make some progress on these issues. The Saturns of the corporations, the innovations that were being uh, uh, demonstrated that they they worked well um, uh, were all happening. And so uh, I was hopeful that we would see the labor movement become the champions for these innovations. And some people in the labor movement did, but basically... The labor movement stayed uh, too focused on traditional collective bargaining and, and labor relations, and, and didn't really see the, the the way in which the workforce wanted to operate um, uh, and have a voice more directly in improving conditions and improving operations on their job. And so uh, it didn't take off. Then, with the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. Uh, he decided to create a commission on the future of worker management relations. And we worked for two years to come up with a blueprint for changing our labor and employment laws to get on with this task. But uh, the reality was there was no taste for this in the Congress, and uh, um, it, we, it, it really went nowhere. My hope and my, my, my hope and, and really my expectation is we will have a short window of opportunity again after this election, right after the new president and Congress uh, take office. And if we don't get on with it now, then we are going to leave the next generation worse off than uh, the, the conditions that, that we enjoyed and the, light, the level of uh, standard of living that we enjoyed uh, in our generation. And so... We better take advantage of this window if it does open up, uh, as I hope it will and as I think it might. I can think of no better nominee for Secretary of Labor than my guest today, Thomas Cohen, uh, talking about the future of work. Maybe uh, President Sanders uh, would appoint you to that. Uh, But back to uh, Bill Clinton and that era. What about the effects of trade deals like NAFTA and CAFTA? on the American employment scene. Have we learned from that, do you think? Well, I think we're learning. It, 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 it seems like we're slow learners. Yeah. But we're learning. Uh, NAFTA, uh, in and of itself, didn't do as much harm as 
many people uh, suggest it did, but it certainly didn't do us any good either. Uh, and it, basically, the trade deals have to be much stronger on both protecting worker rights in the developing countries that we sign these deals with, but also making sure that we then provide the kind of training and investment that creates good job opportunities for people who get displaced um, from international trade. Whether we sign a trade bill or not, we're going to still have um, some jobs uh, that uh, are going to migrate overseas. But that only uh, intensifies the need for a new labor and employment policy not just a little bit of income protection for those who lose their jobs, but really a a full-scale investment so that we rebuild the communities where these jobs are being lost. Look at Detroit. Look at uh, parts of Ohio. Look at um, uh, my hometowns uh, where I grew up in the state of Wisconsin, uh, where they were strong manufacturing centers when I was a kid uh, and um, going to school. And now they're just shadows with uh, mm. uh, with the loss of manufacturing jobs that have not been uh, replaced. Yet you have a, a, a really good, hardworking, and well-educated uh, workforce and uh, a good place uh, to raise a family. And so we should be investing in those communities yeah. with infrastructure investments they badly need, with investments in um, the next generation of manufacturing uh, uh, industries that are coming along with the kind of uh, investments in education and training that makes sure that we're, we're preparing the workforce of the future appropriately. If we do those things, then we'll overcome uh, jobs that are lost. But it can't just be little band-aids. It's mm. going to be a comprehensive strategy. So right now, you know, we're, we're debating this uh, Trans-Pacific yes, uh, yes. Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are enough policy options built into that uh, agreement to protect workers outside the United States or to compensate uh, workers inside the United States. It's largely a trade deal that's going to help uh, copyright laws and patent inf- uh, avoid patent infringement mm. and open up access to, to markets for high-tech firms in other countries and protect them if they uh, uh, feel they're, they're treated unfairly. But it's really not a trade pact that takes account of a comprehensive strategy for the American workforce. And given that we are such a, a global economy now, it's, it's one big economy, I'm, I don't understand why Obama is so strong on the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Hillary Clinton has been as well, you know, at least President Obama, you would think, you know, he has the good of the country at heart, generally, I think, and recognizes that, you know, we have to have a strong economy. And I would think he cares about, you know, his legacy of leaving a good, uh, secure economy. I don't get it. Have, have you figured out why he's behind this thing? Well, I think there's a very, very strong business lobby and a broad-based That's business lobby what I that thought. Uh, yeah. uh, has been uh, uh, pushing uh, for this trade deal. And and frankly, if they, if if we had the kind of modern employment uh, policy that you have in other countries like uh, Northern Europe and Denmark mm-hmm. or in Sweden or in Germany. 
Germany, which has a, an enormous export industry and enormous imports, but they have uh, a training and an income floor, and they have uh, mm. an active labor market policy to help people get retrained and keep their skills current and find jobs and have good uh, employment standards and wages and uh, the uh, uh, works councils for employees to consult yeah. uh, with their their uh, managers on how to build good companies that take account of, of worker needs as well as, as uh, shareholder needs, then I think we could have more of these kinds of trade deals and you could build a, some stronger uh, uh, standards in for both employees in other countries and some uh, adjustment uh, here in the U.S. Under those conditions, we could, we could get uh, uh, stronger trade deals. And, and they would serve both our interests and the interests of the global economy. But we haven't done that. And I think it's largely because business has been so dominant in driving the terms of, of, of these deals. And while labor had a, a, a few people um, uh, with uh, some role in this process, they tried valiantly. I know how hard the AFL-CIO worked to try to get stronger protections and better provisions in uh, in the bill, and uh, they were not very successful. Boy, I, I, I sensing a theme here that you know, short term profits, uber alles, you know, just control everything. And as I've said for a long time, there's nothing wrong with capitalism. It's greed that's the problem, it seems to me. And you talked about uh, Europe, uh, you know, and, and again, Bernie Sanders talks about, uh, you know, that there are other countries that, that do things a little differently here, and they're very, very successful, strong economies. And I be- I'm not sure I'm right here, but I believe... At least some European countries, they have a shorter work week, giving workers more leisure time, which, of course, makes for a happier, more contented, probably more productive workers. Uh, and having a shorter work week also enables more people to be employed. W- what about, say, a, a 30 or 35-hour work week? Might, might that be part of a solution for uh, the future of work? Well, I think there are two things about uh, work hours that are uh, very important to our future. And you're right, yes, Europe, uh, most European countries, uh, France has a 35-hour work week and is still a very high productive, yes. highly productive economy. Yeah. In some cases, more productive than we are. In some cases, maybe uh, we're, we're a bit more productive in some industries. But, but they're certainly a very successful, high-productivity economy, and so are uh, northern European countries. But, uh, so, yes, we should... Uh, look for ways to gradually lower the the threshold for overtime from 40 to maybe 38, 37 hours. Uh, maybe lower it a little bit more overtime if if conditions uh, um, uh, warrant it. But what workers want today more than anything else is they want control over their hours. Just think of all of the complex family situations yes. that we have in. In our uh, economy today, we have uh, both parents working. We have many single parents who are working. We have a 24-7 service economy so that uh, uh, hours, uh, the old hours of 7 to 3.30 or 8 to 5 or 9 to 5 um, are, are not the hours that most people work anymore. Yes, 
people work work during those hours, but they're carrying work home. They're being called back to work. They're having to work late into the night to um, uh, in the service economy because stores and other things are open. Uh, and then often they have to open it up again early in the morning. And, and people need more flexibility to control their schedules. And so mm. uh, the the number of hours we work, and if you ask workers today, is of lower priority uh-huh. than the ability to influence when we work and to control it and to have predictability so that, you know, if I know that I have to work on Sunday uh-huh. um, to to uh, because the store is open or whatever my business happens to be, then I can schedule for it. I can maybe work out Alexa. with my uh, spouse or with whoever is uh, uh, my my care provider um, uh, in in the community, and then uh, I know that I'm going to have time off on Monday to uh, yeah. make sure the kids get to school and I can do the homework with them and so on. But when I'm told i got to come in on Sunday on Friday afternoon, and now I've got to scramble around to meet all those other obligations. That's when I get high stress, and I get uh, big problems, and I get sick, and I get uh, yeah. have to call in sick, or there's absenteeism of one sort or another, and the economy suffers, workers suffer, and families suffer. So we need to have much more control over our schedule. And you're seeing a lot of energy around that issue. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has spoken to it in her campaign. Uh, Bernie Sanders is speaking to it. I think we're going to see some some more uh, uh, efforts to get some uh, limits on uh, uh, and, and greater employee voice on uh, when we work. Uh, coming down the road. <laughs> I get the sense that there are those who want the opposite. They want less employee uh, power. <laughs> they want more... Well, con- let, let me give you an example of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, today there's all this uh, computer-aided software scheduling technology available. And some firms use it to uh, uh, to as a management control technique. And they can plug in and say, here's how many people I need. And how many I am going to need tomorrow, and based on sales uh, last week on this day, I maybe not don't need as many. So they say, don't come in tomorrow because I don't need you, even though I might have been counting on that income and I had mm-hmm. built it into my my schedule. Now I'm I'm not needed. At the same time, that same technology, that same software, can be programmed so that it 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 limits it. It puts in a rule that says. If somebody works Sunday night, we're not going to schedule them for Monday morning because they need to get rest and they need to um, uh, have a a reasonable amount of time. So we can use the technology that's available to improve the conditions of work, or we can use that same technology to squeeze workers to control it by some top manager or some uh, engineer who writes the program uh, and so let's use those technologies in constructive ways to both make sure the business continues to, to, to be staffed, but to be staffed in a way that is predictable, that is fair, and that doesn't uh, 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 put people in, in, in such high-stress situations. Boy, that seems to make a lot of sense, but then again... It doesn't always happen that way legislatively. Uh, If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Tom Cohen. 
author of Shaping the Future of Work. Now, who, who did you write this for? Who do you hope, what, what segments of the population do you hope will, will look at this book and perhaps think about it and, and implement some of this stuff? Well, there are two key groups. The first is uh, um, those of us in the baby boom generation who want one more chance hmm. to not leave such a terrible legacy uh, to our children and grandchildren. And I think we've got one more shot at this. Hmm. That's why I'm so focused on the political process and on the election process, because I think if we can get the right people in, in office, both in the White House and in the Congress, we might be able to uh, uh, respond to the frustration that's out there. And if we don't, we, we will uh, uh, miss this opportunity at our own peril. And, you know, keeping democracy alive, that's your yeah. uh, mantra in, in this great program. Well, we better take some action or we're going to put our democracy um, uh, at peril in the, in the not-too-distant future, given the frustration that's out there. So the first audience are, are people like ourselves who, who really want to make a difference and don't want to leave this mess to our kids. The second are the, are, are, is the next generation itself. We are going to leave them with a mess at some level, and they are the ones who can shape the future. If they start to, to both prepare themselves for the economy of the future and the jobs of the future, and then they build the kind of solidarity and the new forms of work organization, and they start to, to put these technologies to work, and they start to build the organizations that can build, that can, can provide uh, good profits and good jobs, and I so I wrote the book basically for the next generation of leaders, managers, and workers, and say you get on with the task, and here are some things that you can do. I also teach. I'm going to start an online course in two weeks that I would encourage all of your listeners to to sign up for, where we're going to talk about these issues, and we'll read the book, uh, of course, but we'll have conversations. Uh, about this in discussion forums. We'll hear from people all over the world struggling with these issues. We'll hear from uh, existing uh, labor leaders. We'll hear from entrepreneurs. We'll hear from workers talking about their real experiences, good and bad, in their early careers. Mm. And so we'll have a conversation about what needs to be done. And then the last thing we'll do in the course is we're going to negotiate the next generation social contract. We'll put people in the roles of business and government and labor and education and say, all right, sit down now and figure out what should be the way in which we work together, what should be the terms and conditions of employment moving forward, and uh, maybe we can use that as a model for how we can make progress if we can get the real players uh, to sit down uh, at at that kind of uh, uh, bargaining forum. I can't help but think that it's a bit more challenging for the next generation. There used to be the unions was the that was the mechanism for for doing such things. Is there any kind of new mechanism so that this new generation of workers can organize, create, uh, and maintain the social contract? I mean, uh, do they have to just invent it from you know whole cloth here? I, I, what? I don't think they have to invent it from whole cloth, but they shouldn't be constrained to the institutions of the past. Our labor law is so broken that it's very hard to organize a traditional union. But look at what's happening. The fight for 15, the fight for a minimum wage of $15 an hour. That's going on around the country, and it's successful in some cities and and in some states. 
that has really opened up people's eyes to the power of collective action, not formal collective bargaining under our labor law, but uh, new forms of uh, collective action that put pressure on city councils and state legislatures and governors Mm. um, to move in the right uh, direction. The same thing with living wage campaigns Mm -hmm. uh, and and other efforts that are, 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 are going on. We're seeing even Uber drivers, you know, who are completely excluded yeah. from our employment laws because they're supposedly treated as independent contractors, right, right. Uh, begin to organize and to protest collectively and to say, we're going to use the information technology that Uber has to better calculate what we really are earning and uh, are we earning a living wage? Are we covering mm-hmm. the costs of our insurance for our vehicles really? and really? putting aside the money for taxes and so on? And so by, by organizing in new ways and using uh, the same information technology, I think we will create some new uh, uh, organizations, whether we call them unions or whatever they're called, that really can uh, get a voice at work. And so I'm, I'm excited about the amount of innovation we're seeing. We've got a long way to go. We've got to uh, provide the opportunities for young people uh, to, to organize in new ways, to work together, to share information, and to, uh, uh, to, be, to understand that there are possible possibilities yeah. for how we organize work that uh, uh, can provide good jobs. Seems to me so often one of the main stumbling blocks is people's own belief in their own powerlessness. So many people just accept a sense of powerlessness, and it is not true at all, which you certainly know, Professor Koken. In what ways do today's economic challenges remind you of the 1980s, and what what makes you think we might be on the verge of another, a new opportunity to improve work and employment? Well, I just look around and, and I see how many young people are are, are uh, building new uh, organizations, are interested in startups, but startups with a social purpose. If you ask people today, young people, what's the most important thing that they want out of their jobs and careers? It, the answer is that they want to make a difference. They want to work on projects that have some real contributions to solving problems. And yes, they want a better personal and work uh, balance in their lives. Yes. They want to be treated fairly and earn a good income. But they're, they're really motivated to address these issues. If we just open up the opportunities for them and we open up the possibilities and give them a, a positive vision for the future, not just a negative, angry vision yeah, about yeah. Uh, frustration and division and uh, uh, rhetoric, lay out a path for them to go forward and just unleash their creative potential. We'll get there, uh, but we've got we've to open up uh, to change. We've got to put pressure on corporations to be more responsive. Mm. We've got to uh, update our labor and employment laws appropriately, but, but just, get, just listen to the young, younger generation, to the young folks. Give them the tools and opportunities to, to uh, move forward, and I think uh, I think we'll get we'll get this country moving in the right direction. Oh, I I have that faith too. I've seen a lot of the uh, young people, the millennials out there, uh, 
Uh, they go to a lot of Bernie Sanders rallies. Do they get out there and vote, which is a lot less fun than going to a rally? That's another situation. But one of the things that I've always liked about one of our great Democrats, one of our best presidents, Franklin Roosevelt, that Bernie Sanders is talking about as well is public works jobs. We, ha- we have spending for public works jobs now. It's called uh, military contractors, weapons contractors. They don't really do much for the economy. I wonder how much it would matter if we had uh, real public works jobs, rebuilding, you know, fixing our crumbling infrastructure. Oh, the, the, there's there's so much economic evidence that investment in infrastructure, as you said, you know, our infrastructure is crumbling. Oh. Uh, oh. It, it it's embarrassing if you travel around the world. Our our uh, physical infrastructure is is behind our competitors. Our information technology infrastructure and broadband services and all of the uh, related uh, uh, fiber optics are way behind uh, our leading competitors. And if we don't invest in those, uh, we are going to be uh, uh, paying a price in the future. We know that those investments are pay off both in terms of long-term competitiveness of the economy but also good jobs. These are engineering jobs. These are construction jobs. These are jobs for servicing the the new technologies that can pay good wages and uh, support uh, long-term careers. And so I am a very strong uh, proponent, like almost anybody who looks at these issues mm-hmm. objectively is, let's say the investment in infrastructure would be the best thing we could do to get this economy moving and to get jobs that are our American jobs that yeah. will be will will be sustainable here um, uh, for a long period of time, and that will pay uh, long-term dividends for the economy. So that's a, a very high priority. You hear Bernie Sanders, you hear Hillary Clinton, both making um, very very strong uh, 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 proposals in their campaign for investment in infrastructure, uh, and businesses in support of this. It's been the damn Congress that has been uh, resistant to this and everything else, and so, so while you know we can, uh, we can all make our decision on who uh, we want to support for president. Right. I also hope that we keep our eye on the ball and elect senators and members of Congress yes. that are ready to get on with this task and hold them all accountable because that's what it's going to take to make a difference. Yeah, it certainly will. I mean, a president uh, can only do so much, unless, of course, he's Donald Trump, then he can clearly do everything. <laughs> huh. yeah, that's right. God. But uh, you, people are, again, we are not powerless. Young people who've gotten excited about the Bernie campaign, members of Congress, and and uh, uh, Professor Koken, you and I know, <laughs> politicians need to feel it's it's safe. They need to feel public support so that they can move ahead. So uh, people, young people, have to, you know, talk to their candidates running for Congress and for U.S. Senate, because otherwise, you're right, they can't get anything done a- a- at all. Well, this has been very, very interesting, and it's it's nice to get a sense of optimism that there's a positive future here. You always get that these days. The book is called Shaping the Future of Work. 
what future worker, business, government, and education leaders need to do for all to prosper. Uh, our guest today has been Thomas Cochin. I don't know if there's any particular uh, websites you can point people to that uh, might be yeah, informative yeah, on this. Let me, let me do two things. The first is uh, there's a website called speakupforwork.com. Ah. And uh, if you scroll down on the opening page of that website, there'll be a, a picture of the book and a discount where you can get it much cheaper than on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon, but you can get an e-electronic uh, version of the book for $7.50 and the print copy for 15 uh, uh by ordering it uh, uh, direct from the publisher. And that. You know, I didn't. This is not a book that I'm planning to retire on. This is a book I want people to to get out there and to to read and to use. And the second thing I would urge uh, is to just go on the MIT, just plug in MITx on uh, your uh, internet uh, browser, and then you will scroll down and you'll see this course called Shaping the Future of Work. And we're going to be talking about these issues all the for the next seven weeks, and I'd encourage people to enroll in the course. It's free. There's no charge. You can sample it. You don't have to take the whole thing. Mm. You can do whatever you want, but it's a way for us to engage people in the workforce about these issues. We'll read the book. The, the copies of the, the chapters are on uh, on the online course. You don't even have to buy the book if you don't want to. I don't care about that. I do care about getting these ideas discussed by as many people in the country as we can. Let's hope so. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Thomas uh, Cochin. The name of the book, Shaping the Future of Work. Thanks for being with us today and uh, for the work you're doing. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bert. Keep up the good work. You too. It is about work. Get, get, get working. Stop by just the same All my children